Hello, me buckos. It's Glenn here with then again on the podcast for the Northeast Georgia History Center. And today we be talking, of course, about the pirates. And that's enough of that for now. This, this is, uh, we're going to be talking about pirates and we have brought in our old friend, uh, Jeff Pardue with UNG. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. You're welcome, Glenn. Thanks for inviting me. And hopefully you weren't, you're not going to make me talk like a pirate because I'm going to fail. Um, <laughs> very well done on your part, though. Oh, oh, thank you. Yes, that's we only we only require that of our uh, compatriots once a year on Talk Like a Pirate. Uh, all right. Excellent. So, yeah, but it did get me in the zone, so I'm ready. Good, good. <laughs> well, I mean, gosh, pirates are such a huge, huge part of our popular culture. And most things get into our popular culture through history. So, you know, you're an, an Atlanticist, really. You focus on the Atlantic. And, and most of what we think we know about pirates comes from that golden age of piracy in the Caribbean. So take us just a little bit through how that formed and, and why it was such a, a big deal in that day and age. Well, it was a big deal mainly because of publicity. Uh, and so it's, a, you know, some of that hasn't changed. Before there was social media and, and uh, influencers and all that, you know, you had books being published uh, with, uh, with great tales. And so the golden age of piracy is, is, there's debate amongst historians about exactly when that is, but it's roughly the first couple of decades of the 18th century. In 1724, there was a book published. It's called The General History of Pirates. And it was published by a guy in London named Captain Roberts. Uh, it's a pseudonym. Uh, like nobody knows really who the author was. Some speculation is Daniel Defoe or something. But in any case, it's it, it had all kinds of colorful stories about these pirates. And it's that book that became the inspiration for later writers like Robert Louis Stevenson or J.M. Barry, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean for that matter. So that's part of the reason why it, it, it's come into popular culture in such a big way is just from that. And, and the stories are not historically grounded. Like, again, it, we, we can't verify a lot of the stuff that's in that book, but it just kind of comes down as lore that's accepted because, again, they're, it's fun. You know, when you're talking about the golden age of piracy and the most famous pirates like Blackbeard or Black Bart or, you know, th those guys, that's where that comes from. Of course, you can uh, broaden the period out to include kind of an earlier period in the really 16th and 17th centuries. I mean, pirates get started really as privateers, right? They're, they're actually working for governments attacking the Spanish. And so that's kind of how they all got their start. And then a lot of them ended up turning to piracy later in, in the 17th century when states began to withdraw their, their support for such activities. So that the, the first couple of decades in the 18th century is when really they have no home in terms of state-sponsored backing. And they have for a brief time this base in the Bahamas, Nassau, you know, they've got the Republic of Pirates there. Again, it's just a, a conditions that make for great stories. Uh, pirates are, they're sea robbers, right? They're, they're stealing stuff. And the popular culture tells us that they're always looking for a chest full of gold and silver. But I'm guessing that was probably not a very common loot. What were they actually looking to get and how were they going to transfer that into the cash money that they so desperately wanted? Yeah, uh, I mean, really, they're just trying to get valuable trade goods. So in, in the 1690s on is when they begin venturing out in the Indian Ocean. There's a lot of Indian silks and calicos and all that kind of stuff that they're interested in. But even in, in the new world here that uh, they're interested in, yeah, kind of more basic trade items that 
would bring in a lot of money that we might not consider valuable, but were valuable at the time. You know, I mean, occasionally, sure, they, they did find some gold or uh, more often, I think it was actually like jewels. It, 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 you have to go earlier to find the kind of gold and silver. I mean, that's the, the Spanish treasure fleets were kind of laden with that bullion that. But again, it's a little bit earlier. In the period we're talking about, that isn't so much. You would go after these valuable trade items, uh, but then, as you say, you got to find a place to, to get rid of it, to sell it. And so you had to have, basically, you had to find a governor, you know, some sort of official who's <laughs> you can bribe in order to sell your goods. So Nassau, that, that was one reason why that was a, a location for a brief time until 1718 when the British basically cracked down on it, uh, why that was such a popular place. But like North Carolina, the governor of North Carolina in the first couple of decades, like Blackbeard, he knew he could sell his goods to him. Uh, and so that was, you know, another way of unloading your stuff and, you know, getting uh, money for it. And then even better, you kind of hope from that same official, you might get a pardon sometime later. So then you're free. Now, now hold on a second. <laughs> you're telling me that a government official would turn a blind eye to criminal activity for financial gain? I know, it's shocking. Quite common. The, the rules were quite loose and a lot of people saw benefit in helping these guys out. Well, you know, and, and that's the thing, you know, trade and, and money make the girl, world go round and the, the pirates certainly helped with that. But we, as you say, today we have this image of pirates that may or may not be close to the reality. So the pirate we think of, he has very bad grammar and speech patterns like I had at the beginning <laughs> of the podcast. They have gigantic beards, mm. uh, puffy shirts and pants. They have <laughs> three or four pistols. They've got at least one sword. They've got knee-high boots. And they're incredibly <laughs> violent and bent on killing everyone they come across. How accurate is that? It's sort of accurate uh, to an extent. They, they were pretty well armed, but they, they much preferred to scare uh, you know, ships that they were chasing into submission ex rather than fight that ship. So it's a little bit like you know the Mongols or other kind of fearsome armies in history where they would much prefer cities to just like put up their hands that we give up here's our money and they did the same thing so like blackbeard the real name was edward teach he it was called blackbeard because he did have a huge beard you know a lot of them did not but he had a huge black beard and he reportedly carried four or five pistols on him but he also had lit fuses in his hat and and so the idea was when you first board the ship you overwhelm the other ship with this terrifying image that they just like drop their weapons and say, okay, here you go. So the part about being armed and being fearsome, that part might be true, but the, a, a lot of times the fighting was not necessarily true. All right, what were some of the other myths? Uh, yeah, the, 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 the clothing, I mean, they dressed as regular sailors. I mean, these guys mostly came from the ranks of, I mean, they were just, you know, from merchant ships. So they, they dressed like sailors. They didn't, you know, there wasn't right. any, you know, change of get the bandana out and, uh, you know, the, the, the pirate bandana. Well, you know, that, that brings up something else. So, so as you say, most of these guys were, were just regular sailors that were looking to have a more lucrative career than they can get in the Royal Navy or in a, in a merchant ship or something like that. And there has been a lot of scholarship slash effort by people to say, hey, look, maybe the pirates were a little more progressive and democratic 
than we give them credit for. How much, how much truth is there to that interpretation of things? I, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, like I would highly recommend, like when I've talked about pirates in class, I try to really stay away from the pirates of the Caribbean version. And, you know, there's a, a, a great book called villains of all nations. It's a great work of scholarship that kind of gets into exactly what you're talking about. So, you know, and really he, he kind of interprets pirate history in this golden age as kind of a big labor revolt that a lot of these guys worked in horrible conditions on these ships. And of course, as you know, you know, these naval captains, whether a merchant Marine or in the Royal Navy had absolute authority over their ships and, you know, very often could be very cruel. So they're working in these very difficult circumstances, oftentimes for horrible bosses, and that lays the groundwork for a lot of grievance. In fact, our word for strike comes from the 18th century, it's a little bit later, 1760s, when a bunch of sailors strike the top gallants uh, on the merchant ships that they were in, in, in solidarity with the workers of London who had gone on strike because of this. So that, so that part is pretty accurate. Also, like when you became a pirate, most pirates operated by the so-called pirate code. And again, there were uh, many versions of the pirate code, but in essence, almost all of them contained the one man, one vote principle, the division of spoils principles, workman's comp, you know, like if you got <laughs> injured, there was like what you most likely were, there was going to be support for you when that happened. Uh, and then you know, there, there's other kind of additions later, but that that's kind of the core of that so-called pirate code, which is very democratic. And so, yeah, this, this book basically says pirates in essence were anti-authoritarian and very egalitarian. The captain, for example, a pirate captain did not have absolute authority unless they were in the middle of battle. But other than that, it's a vote. Also, the highest authority in some respects, in addition to like the pirates themselves voting uh, on issues about who they're going to attack or what, what they're going to do, was the quartermaster. You know, normally this is just the supplies guy, right? right? But on a pirate ship, he's the one that makes sure the loot is distributed equally. And he's also kind of the parliamentarian or the kind of referee on, on this is what the, the rules are. And he's the one that kind of uh, interpreted that. So yeah, it's just a very interesting organization. And, and again, one we don't often think about. Right. And, and not only democratic politically and economically, but they're pretty accepting of racial equality too, right? I mean, a, you know, a crewman is a crewman and, and that's it. Absolutely. So, I mean, you have many ex-slaves, escaped slaves uh, on these ships, significant uh, number of pirates. I mean, it's just very well documented there. Earlier periods, uh, so that, especially in the golden age, because this is kind of the, you know, high point of, it, it's really when the Atlantic slave trade is gearing up. And so it, it just makes sense that there's going to be a large number uh, of those as well. In an earlier period, you would have seen like uh, religious kind of refugees. So like the French Huguenots, you know, French Protestants, people like that joining these uh, pirates. So again, kind of social outcasts in some respects joining. And yeah, and pirates didn't really care what your background was. I mean, that that was okay. Given that, it sounds like a, you know, a great job opportunity. It's <laughs> lucrative. But is that, how much of that, of, of course, the Royal Navy ends up, and other nations too, not just England, but other nations decide at some point to really start cracking down on this. Of course, obviously, because it's interfering with their trade, 
but maybe, you know, based on the seeing it as a widespread labor dispute, is this another reason that these nation states and their authoritarian navies are going to kind of have to put an end to this crazy thought of, of equality? Yeah, I, I guess I, I hadn't seen it exactly in those terms, which I'm sure the, the people in power who are making these decisions probably would either consciously or unconsciously maybe think about, okay, who are these upstarts or something or what, you know, feeling very threatened by the notions of equality. I guess I tend to think more the people at those levels, when you're talking about parliament or, you know, like lower officials, you know, governors or people like that, they're more concerned. It's bad for business. So like, this is where trade is picking up. Decades earlier, they were happy to use these guys to attack the Spanish. The Spanish are diminished by the early 18th century. Uh, the war of Spanish succession ends in 1716. And so the, you know, the English, they, you know, they don't want now these kind of guys are just like attacking what are uh, other nations that made peace with. They're, they're more focused on basically building up these colonies and making them more lucrative. And of course, it's completely based on inequality. Many of these are, of course, slave colonies and things like that. So, but I think just in general, it was seen as kind of a threat to business and a threat to authority. There's a famous story of this captain, a guy named William Fly. Some scholars, including Redeker, considers his uh, execution to be the end of the Golden Age in 1726. But he was, he wasn't even a pirate for that long. But he was very defiant, uh, like the story goes, when he's being marched. So he gets captured and, and uh, he's tried in Boston and he's getting marched to the gallows. And he basically just almost laughs with contempt at the way that the noose was tied and supposedly retied it himself. But also Cotton Mather had tried desperately to get him to recant publicly his life as a pirate right before he's, he's hanged. He makes this just little speech saying, until the regular sailor is treated decently and paid decently, this is what's going to happen. So that is, you know, really a, a guy kind of calling out the inequality of, of the time. And certainly authority figures like Cotton Mather and others feeling threatened by, by that kind of thing. Yeah, the end of the golden age. But then as time goes by, we all know that it has become an incredibly popular field for literature, for movies and things like that. So surely you must have watched a whole bunch of pirate movies. <laughs> Actually, I haven't watched too many. I haven't even watched all of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. I think I only made it up through, but uh, honestly, I haven't uh, seen many. Have you? Like what, uh, what, what's your favorite? Uh, yeah, I, I have. I've uh, mostly because of the sword fighting, right? It all goes back <laughs> to the swords for me. And early on I got, and, and there's few movies have ships and swords like pirate movies. Yeah. Right. right. So especially the old, the old Errol Flynn and Douglas Fairbanks back mm. when you could find those on VHS. Oh, wow. I, I got those on VHS and uh -huh. Captain Blood and, and Seahawks and, you know, all those, those sorts of movies. I love those, you know, like everyone else, I watched the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. They're really good. But, but for me personally, it always harkens back to that, you know, the, the golden age of piracy is as represented in the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> right. Nothing beats an Errol Flynn movie. Well, I need to, yeah. Uh, so, you've, uh, you know, your, your recommendation has, has sold me. So I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll definitely look up. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I've seen any Errol Flynn movies, I'm embarrassed to say. So, you know. Yes. Uh, start with Captain Blood. All right. Captain that's Blood one of his, that's, that's the movie that, that made him famous. And he is opposite the remarkably beautiful Olivia de Havilland in that. Oh, wow. Okay. That was their first movie together. So yeah, yeah. it's a good one.
Yeah, excellent. And and how are they portrayed in this uh, movie? Like, are, are I, I imagine they're sympathetic? I mean, is they, they're they're kind of Robin Hoods or something? That oh they, yeah, ab- absolutely. So he is he is on the wrong side of uh, the English Civil War, and treats he's a doctor. He treats the wrong people, and is sold into slavery as punishment, and is sent to to uh, I can't remember which island. Maybe it's Jamaica, mm-hmm. uh, and he hangs out with the other slaves and realizes that things are about all over. And of course, being the most educated and erudite person amongst them, mm-hmm. uh, foments a rebellion, captures a ship, and then decides to go pirate himself for the cause of justice. And, but here's the thing, at the, end of the, at the end of the movie, a representative from King William, that after the, everything has happened, comes over and deference to the bad things he's gone through and his service to the crown, quote unquote, makes him governor of the island. <laughs> and he and Olivia de Havilland live happily ever after. Oh, that's, that's uh, great. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, so I can totally see that. And I, I mean, that and, and the idea that like, especially Americans, we're, we're so, you know, we love our kind of individualistic ethos. And these guys, you know, portray that and stick it to the man kind of uh, attitude. I, I totally see that. Uh, that that sounds very much, you know, I mean, that's Henry Morgan is what it sounds like, uh, is another guy who was sent back to England. He was supposed to be tried, but, you know, he got a hero's welcome for, you know, basically he had, had been robbing the Spanish up to that point. And uh, yeah, was given, was pardoned and then knighted uh, and sent and then went back to Jamaica as a governor. Uh, one of his second in commands, his surgeon, a guy named Alexander Esquimillen. I, I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's, it's Dutch or Flemish or, or something. It's, it's unclear where he was born. But he published kind of an expose. Uh, it's sort of the first version of that general history of pirates. Mm-hmm. So in the 1670s, he publishes this, this book. And yeah, Morgan uh, basically sued the publishers uh, for libel because the guy claimed that he, you know, that Morgan, uh, when he captured Panama City, had killed monks and nuns and, you know, uh, other folks like that. (laughs) Bad things happen. The vast, vast majority, I think you kind of suggested this earlier, it did not end well, okay? Which is why, I mean, the myth of burying your treasure, why would you do that? You know, you're going to, good chance you're going to die tomorrow. So you're going to spend it now. <laughs> pirates, I think they're going to stick around with us a long time, especially those golden age pirates. As you say, they're, they're, they're our connection to a, an anti-authoritarian, individualistic, adventure-seeking, swashbuckling, everything seems to go right with them. So... Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, here, here's your last question. When you decide not to be the department head for the history uh, department anymore, are you going to go pirate? <laughs> uh, maybe, you know, I, I think I, I, I need to start working on my flag. I, I may do that, though. So, you know, all these pirates had their own, you know, like the Jolly Roger, but there were many versions of that. Right. And so uh, I'll get to work on mine. Once I'm no longer part of the establishment, uh, I'll be working against the <laughs> establishment. Perfect. Perfect. Take a sabbatical and get started on that. There you go. Yeah. Oh, well, Jeff, thank you so much for this conversation about pirates. It's uh, always a pleasure. Love your program. Love your live streams. Yeah. Great job, Glenn. Proud of the the history center. It's, it's uh, you guys doing a great job. We, we actually, we truly do appreciate that. We truly appreciate that folks. That's all we have time for this time. We're going to wrap it up. Thanks for tuning in to then again. Keep following us on our website and our Facebook for upcoming things. And of course, stay safe and take care. 
Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. We also hope you'll join us for our free weekly live stream programs on Facebook Live and YouTube Live every week at 2 p.m. Eastern. Just search for the Northeast Georgia History Center and we'll pop right up. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Our next members live stream is a virtual tour of the 18th century White Path Cabin here at the History Center. Digital memberships are as low as $3 a month or $35 a year, and you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages, again, at www.negahc.org. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.